Hello and welcome to another episode of the Live Immediately podcast with Mike Campbell. Thank you so much for listening. This is where I have conversations with people who are living life on their own terms. We dive into those big moments that have pushed them through the fears and self-limiting beliefs that hold so many of us back. Now, so much of life, what happens around us is out of our control. The only part of life that is within our control is the attitude in which we approach it. My guest today, Talon Windwalker, is a wonderful man who approaches life with a caring soul and who lives by the motto of no regrets. I reached out to Talon as I wanted to learn about his life as a single parent traveling the world indefinitely with his adopted child. But as you'll hear, the stories and lessons that Talon will tell are about so much more than travel. Talon is an author, writer, hospice chaplain, Zen monk, ultra runner, snowshoer, endurance cyclist, certified endurance running coach, scuba instructor, photographer, and lover of traveling languages and cultures. In our conversation, Talon talks about death and life as a hospice chaplain, being 300 pounds, losing weight, and becoming an ultra marathon runner. Being a single man and adopting a child, traveling to over 30 countries and world schooling his child, along with the addictive experience of scuba diving. Talon also talks about the moment his son announced that he was transgender, identifying as female while they were in Budapest. A situation I'm sure no parent is prepared for, but I admire and love the honest and beautiful way Talon responds and supports his daughter through this journey. Talon is a selfless, kind and compassionate father who is making sure he packs as much living into his life as possible. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Talon Windwalker. Hi Talon, how are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm very good. Thanks, mate. Very good indeed. And I, I want to start this, our chat today, by reading a paragraph from your website, onedadonekid.com. And I guess after that, we'll, we'll see where we go. And it, re- okay. and it reads, Talon Windwalker is a single parent, author, writer, former hospice chaplain, Zen monk, ultra runner, snowshoer, endurance cyclist, Certified endurance runner, running coach, scuba instructor, photographer, and lover of traveling languages and culture. You wear many hats, my friend. Which one do you want yes. to talk about first? <laughs> well, um, the former hospice, I'm actually back working in hospice again. So, Got you. So, well, um, well, well let's start there. I guess, you know, as a, as a hospice chaplain or, or just working within the, the hospice space and, and correct me if I'm wrong here I'm gathering that you're going to be around death a fair bit oh yeah yeah that's I'm surrounded by it <laughs> so, so, so so with that what what has death taught you about living well I think the biggest thing I learned from it was to not put off hopes and dreams and wishes um in working in trauma and intensive care and hospice, I've heard so many times from people, oh, 
I wish I had done this. I wish I had done that. In fact, I remember shortly before um, we were getting ready to leave to start our our indefinite travel, um, I got a patient who had wanted to do an Alaska cruise her whole life. And she figured she would wait until she was retired. And she saved up all this money. And she retired. And about a month after retirement, she had a massive stroke. And a few months later, she died. And I just, <laughs> I was mm. preparing to, you know, to do our travels with the main goal of getting more uh, life into living or more living into my life. And I had that as just kind of a confirmation that, you know, the no regrets is our, is our motto. And mm. it really is um, something I've, I've heard so many stories from people. And so I just decided that, you know, when you're ready, you need to, if you want to do something, you need to do it because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah, it's so true. Like we have a, we had a family friend um, who worked his whole life, was a CEO, uh, had just retired, like super fit, was a runner. Um, his name was Terry and, and he passed. And it was one of the... Um, Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? It was like one of the big things that Inger and I, my wife, spoke about and thought about like that really pushed us us to go on, on our big adventure as well. It's kind of like, wow, like you can't just, you can't wait for that day when, you know, in the future to start doing things because th those days just sometimes don't happen. Yeah, that's for sure. Now <laughs> life can surprise you. We, you know, I've, I have a patient right now that uh, he had, been feeling a little bit off, but not too much. He ended up having a fall and then suddenly was paralyzed. And they, when they studied in the hospital, they found that his spine and um, had cancer and it was actually riddled throughout his body. And I mean, just from one moment to the next, his life drastically changed and now he's dying. Wow. And, and, you know, being around these patients that are kind of once they get to hospice it's kind of like it's really a, a, a waiting period there's kind of a point of no return what what's the the average age of these these patients um you know that's tough i would say probably in their 70s mm -hmm. you know most of our our people are in their advanced age and their bodies are winding down uh but we've definitely had younger we've i've had uh patient in their 20s had you know we've got a couple right now in their 40s mm. so it's it's not uncommon to be much younger and still be on the, you know looking at the end of your life and and you, you spoke about um you know people coming to the end of their life there what what's the first thing you think about when someone has just passed well for me it you know it's part of my job so for us in hospice, when they die, that's that was the goal of care was mm -hmm. to support them and give them the highest quality of life that they could possibly have for what however remaining days or months they have. And so when they die, you know, we've we did what we were supposed to. We walked with them through their journey and took them to the end. And so, you know, but generally I'm worried about families and how they're reacting loved ones. Um, a big part of my job is supporting the families after the death. So I'm very concerned. How do they do at the death? How are they looking at this? How is it affecting them? 
And how did, how did you end up in, in hospice? It was something I was just always interested in ever since I, I heard about it in, gosh, I think it was the 80s. Um, I've just, my my cultural background around death and dying is very different from most Americans probably. And so I just was always very fascinated about that part of life. And, you know, we look at birth as being this really sacred, special moment, but I feel like death is is the same situation and in some cases maybe even a little bit more um, sacred and more blessed because now we're saying goodbye to someone who's led however many years they've had. Um, so just the idea of, you know, working in the hospital, I've, I've seen what hospital deaths look like um, versus people who have the opportunity to die in their home. And uh, it's, it's a huge difference. So I would rather support people in being able to be around their loved ones and, mm. you know, be able to have their, their dog or their cat on their bed, you know, and spending as much time with people that they care about as possible in an environment that is comfortable and soothing to them rather than, you know, hospitals, no matter mm. how much you try yeah. to make them, it's still a sterile, rough, not getting a lot of rest, you know, it's just not the the best environment for to end your life if you can avoid that. Mm. Yeah, that's, a, I, I think it's a a unique and special job and I, and I think it takes a unique and special person to do that. So, you know, thank you. Um, endurance running, kind of changing tact a little bit here. How, <laughs> how did you get into endurance running? Well, that was really funny. Um, I I had a, a, a joint disease when I was a teenager, and so I wasn't able to do sports or anything. And then as I got older, it developed into arthritis and other knee trouble. And so for most of my life, I wasn't able to do any type of running or anything. And uh, there was just a, a point where I had gained tons of weight. And I was really, really big. And uh, in working with a patient who was much larger, who's almost 1,200 pounds, um, I whoa, 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 can't whoa, whoa, do whoa. the yeah, so I can't <laughs> do the conversion to kilograms for you on that one. <laughs> so, but well, if if he what 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 were you at? at that point i was almost 300 pounds got you which i think there's yeah. maybe about two pounds in the kilo so we're looking at a, a, about 150 140 kilograms yeah. which is um that's big yeah it is wow sorry and i uh so in working with him and he was unconscious uh for a great deal of our time together because they had to keep him sedated to keep the tube in his throat and the neck uh, so that he could breathe, because if they lost it with so much fat in his neck, they figured they wouldn't be able to put it back in and he would die. Um, so I sat with him for months in the ICU and in other parts of the hospital and back when I was doing my training and uh, just heard his story and spent time with him and saw family and heard more about him and uh, his story. And one night I went home and changed into my jeans and these were my fat jeans and they um, were starting to get a little tighter. And I just thought, no, I, I don't want to go this route. This is the path I'm on. I don't want to continue on that. And so I started losing weight and uh, started, I lived on the third floor of an apartment building and I started noticing as I was losing weight that my knees weren't bothering me. And I started doing some uh, exercise with DVD in my apartment because I didn't want anyone to see me. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
So I was doing, you know, like kind of a aerobics, step aerobics type stuff and didn't want people to see that. So I did it in my home. And um, I just noticed that during walking and going up and down stairs that my knees weren't bothering me. And I decided one day, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just curious. I'm going to try this. And so I went to the park and I, I did a jog for about a half mile. And I was like, huh, I'm. I'm actually not in pain, so I went ahead and finished off the mile. How did how did that and make you feel finishing that mile? I was pretty ecstatic, but I was also scared because I thought, boy, I'm really going to be suffering later. My knees mm. are going to, you know, come back and get me. <laughs> but it didn't, and I waited for a couple of days, and my knees didn't complain. So I went back and I did a little bit of a longer run and just um, started doing it every other day, and I wasn't having any knee trouble. So I decided that. I was going to do a, a 5K as my my big kind of thing. I had never done it, never ran that mm. far before. And so I did all this training and did the 5K, and I was so excited to finish that. And uh, I thought, well, okay, you know, I, I 5K is good. I'm just going to go ahead and, and kind of stay there. And so I started doing those, and friends were saying, oh, are you going to run a marathon? Thought, oh, no, a marathon's for crazy people. And so uh, – as I was doing these 5Ks, I thought, you know, a 10K sounds kind of interesting, just, you know, out of curiosity. And I went ahead and did a 10K and I thought, yeah, you know, I think I am going to set a goal for a marathon. And so I, the marathon I wanted to do was really not that far away in terms of time. And I decided I was going to tackle that anyways. And when I did the marathon, I just was totally, uh, <laughs> I can't even describe how excited I was. And how thrilled I was and exhausted and in pain, but my knees still held through. And I just was like, wow, I really enjoy this. I enjoy the freedom and I enjoy being able to do something I had wanted to do my whole life, but couldn't. And um, then I, you know, I was doing some more marathons and then I discovered this thing called an ultra marathon, which is more than a marathon. And I was like, what's that? <laughs> doing some research and I found one that looked really cool. That was a 50 K and I thought, well, that sounds fun. And so I went ahead and decided to do that and I did it and I was totally hooked and just, yeah, just kept doing it. And then after I'd been running for a while, I thought, well, I need to do endurance cycling as well. So I started <laughs> doing those and set a hundred miler as a, as a goal and ended up um, doing a race that was or not a race, but an event that was 102 miles. And yeah, I just, I I told people I'm in, I'm addicted to these endorphins. <laughs> wow! But Mate, uh, as congratulations, that's no, that's unbelievable. Um, just like good on you, really, really good on you. Like kind of going back to to the start of all that, and you spoke about some DVDs in your room because you didn't want anyone seeing seeing you, and you you were walking up the stairs a lot. Were there other things that you did to kind of really start stripping back the weight initially? Like, did you change your eating habits? Did you have to like change the whole way that you lived or, or, or what did that look like? Yeah, I pretty did have to do pretty much a whole lifestyle change. Um, the hospital I worked at, we actually had a Weight Watchers group that met at the hospital and I decided to go ahead and do that program. Um, and that's what started my weight loss. And uh, I found, you know, that that type of program allowed me to um, 
you know, eat more of a variety of things and not be as restrictive and, you know, kind of learn a better way of doing things, but still be able to do an occasional treat kind of thing. And uh, it was discipline. You go every week to get weighed in and um, then you have group and, you know, afterwards where they talk about different challenges or whatever. And so it was a, a really good way for me to start. And that's pretty much what started that whole thing. And um, I started, you know, parking my car further away from the hospital entrance, um, you know, growing to grocery stores, parking further away from the grocery store so that I was walking more. Mm. Uh, I started, that was the other thing that started before the running as I started doing more stairs at work and um, I wasn't in pain. And so that was a, a huge thing. And that's another thing that kind of got me thinking, maybe I might be able to run. Yeah. So, but yeah, it's definitely a, a total change. And, um, you know, I'm a major stress eater and I really had to address that because that's, that's a big, big problem. And I, I guess like when you, when you want to kind of create this change in your life, I guess you start to really peel the layers back on that onion. You know, it's not just, I need to eat healthy to, to lose this weight. As you kind of said, you then got to deal with those other emotions of why you eat when you're stressed. Yeah. And, and you spoke there too about just kind of parking, uh, you know, a little bit further away and, and taking the stairs a little bit more. Did, did you find it was a collection of like little things that you did and that you added these little positive things in your day instead of kind of one big change? Yeah, it's it's definitely a multi-layered approach. You can't just change one little thing. You know, a lot of a lot of people that don't have weight problems um, think, oh well, if you just reduce your calories, you're fine. It's not really true for a lot of us. For some people, yes, but for a lot of us, especially, I I have a lot of genes that are against me <laughs> on my on both sides of my family, and that's complicated. When you're a child at around age ten, your fat cells duplicate, they split. Um, so if you're overweight at age 10, then you now have all these cells and empty cells are just sitting there waiting to be filled. And there's just all these ways mm. of looking at things, your activity level, how you're sleeping, sleep effect can affect your weight. So, I mean, there's, there's tons of different things that people really have to change. You know, a slow approach is helpful because there's a lot of things to change and look at in your life. But um, that's where for me doing the the diet was the natural starting place because I needed to lose some of the weight so that I could do some of these other things. So I would sleep better and et cetera, et cetera. But um, as you do that and you start having successes and you start looking at other areas of your life, what can I change here? What's going on here? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it took a while before I was able to say, okay, so now I need to look at what do I do instead of stress eating? What do I do? You know, it used to be to celebrate, I would always go out and have a meal with a special treat. And instead, I would go for a run, you know, things like that. I had to look at behaviors and say, what what behaviors can I change and what needs to be changed to help what I'm trying to achieve? And you're a, a single parent to an adopted child. Can, mm -hmm. can you tell me about the moment you became a dad? Yeah, well, <laughs> excuse me. Um, what's kind of interesting was that um, I had looked at doing this for a while. And um, after 
you know, I'd lost all this weight and I was doing this running and I started traveling more and I felt like for the first time in my life, I was really living for myself rather than, you know, taking care of everyone else. And so I had thought about wanting to adopt as a single parent as I wasn't going to wait till I got a partner. And um, just, I felt like, well, at this moment, I, I need to continue just kind of enjoying life and doing things for myself because I've never done that. And uh, one of my big things I've wanted to do is go to Paris. And so um, I discovered there's a marathon in Paris and I was like, oh, wow, I could go to Paris and do a marathon. This is a winner. So I decided to do that. And um, while I was in Paris, my last night, I treated myself to a dinner in the Eiffel Tower, the, one of the restaurants in the Eiffel Tower, and just had this really amazing night, you know, between delicious food and the ambiance and the beautiful view and just how the whole time had been in Paris. I was getting ready to go home and everything. And it just hit me in that moment. Okay, you did what you needed to do and now you're ready. And so when I got home the next day, I actually called the county and uh, left a message that I was, you know, interested and needed some information because my apartment lease was coming up and I needed to get an apartment that had enough bedrooms and everything. And she called me back and she said, oh, well, yeah, there's this eight week class you have to do. And I said, oh, and she said, and starting tonight. And I was like, oh, bummer. I wish I had known. I totally would go. And she's like, you can still go. And so I thought, well, there's another backup <laughs> to the sign there. So, 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 the so what was really moving it? What what was the eight week class for? Um, if if you are adopting through the uh, county, like foster children, and mm -hmm. you're you know adopting them, they put you through a parenting training. So you have to uh, do okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not only learning parenting, but you're also learning how to parent children who have not had a typical life. Mm -hmm. And um, so there's, you know, challenges there. Plus you have to learn what the state requires and everything like that. And so, but I just, so I signed up and went to the class that night and um, took it from there. And before the class finished, they approached me about a child. And um, that was just an incredible moment. And I thought, wow, this is actually, you know, going to happen. I'm actually going to be a dad. And, um, and so when I was matched with this child and I accepted, um, they, you know, usually you start doing some visits with them first so they can kind of get to know you before they move into your home. And the first time we were out and I told him, you know, you can call me Talon, you can call me dad, whichever's the most comfortable for you. And we were out at a park climbing a tree and he's like, dad, dad, help me. And I just almost lost it. Wow. <laughs> you know, just to me, it was such a magical word to be called that. So. That's 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 beautiful. It it feels and correct me if I'm wrong. It feels like your process into adoption seemed quite easily. Like I have friends that are going through an adoption process now, and they've been slogging at this for like three years, and the amount of hoops that they got to kind of jump through. Um, it yeah you it was well. Are they Austra Are they Australian? Yeah. Yeah, my understanding is the Australian adoption process is hell. It is. It um, is. You there's a huge, huge challenge compared to um, a lot of countries, and especially America. In America, it's it's much easier, especially if you're uh, like me, you're willing to adopt older children. You're not mm -hmm. looking for a baby. 
um, you know, then it's even much easier. Yeah. And isn't it better to have kids in a home with someone who wants to love them and take care of them than being like a ward of the state? But um, maybe a bigger oh, yeah. conversation for another day. Um, so you get called dad like the first time. And, mm-hmm. you know, I guess like any parent, you're trying to like navigate parenthood and and also mixed in with that i guess the challenges that come with a a, a child um how old how old was your, your child when you first uh, adopted so so that child was nine mm-hmm. and when they first moved in with me so so nine years old and so do you, do you have more than one child now or well, yeah, kind of a long story on that one. But ultimately, unfortunately, that first one that I adopted, um, significant trauma, significant mental illness, and was horribly violent. And um, the way that the state that I was living in, the way that it handles mental health for these children in his situation just was not good. And the uh, it ultimately ended up where the only way I could get him the help he needed so that he had a shot at a decent life was to give up my rights as his parent so that mm-hmm. the state had to have control over that. So, so I still count him, but technically and legally it's not mine anymore. So, yeah. And so then I'm, I'm gathering that you have, you then adopted another child. Yes. Yeah. Um, which is tiger. Tigger. Yeah. Tigger. So with, so with that, like kind of learning, uh, you know, how to be a father and, and all of those kind of things and also dealing with, um, you know, a child who hasn't had a, a typical upbringing and would come with its a whole bag of, of additional um, issues and, and hurdles. How was that navigational process for you? Um, you know, it's definitely a challenge. You don't. You know, with the kids that you're looking at, if you're going to adopt through foster care, um, you know, often they have limited information about the child and what they've seen and what they've experienced. Um, the first one I had had been through multiple placements and his family, um, the level of abuse that those kids endured was the worst in that state's history. So, you know, this child came into the world in a really horrible situation and the first several years of his life were just awful. When he went into foster care, um, I think he was six or seven. And then because of his challenges, he had multiple hospitalizations and I ended up being, I think I was his 12th placement. So he had been in 12 different homes and he had been unfortunately in an adoptive situation where I don't know why the County picked the parents they did, but, um, when he was with them and had issues, they're like, yeah, we're not, we're not equipped for this. We're not doing this. And so while he was in the hospital, they said, we're not adopting you. And, you know, so this poor kid just, you know, but then you have other children who weren't exposed to as much hell and why they have, you know, a few little bumps and you may have some educational issues or some, you know, other minor issues to get past. They're, their you know life is much different and raising them is much different so there's a pretty broad spectrum um and so a lot of what you're doing is just kind of going along and then when something comes up like oh okay and some things mm-hmm. you expect and others you're like oh wow okay didn't 
wasn't expecting this part or wasn't sure about this and hey, that, that, uh, I think that's just parenthood <laughs> we're all we're, yeah, all, we're all going a little bit blind going through it a bit yeah. blind I got a little um a little girl she's six uh, turning seven and um some days I knock it out of the park and other days I'm like well we'll start tomorrow again but, yeah uh, <laughs> um and you spoke you spoke earlier about in indefinite traveling and and in 2011, you, you set out on a, on a travel adventure with your child Tigger. Mm-hmm. What were some of the fears that you had about packing up your life and becoming a full time nomad? Well, um, a big one was whenever our travels were ending, was I going to be able to get a job? Um, you know, chaplain positions are few and far between. Um, so getting a position is very challenging. So I was worried about that. I was worried about being able to support us while we were in a state of movement. I also was concerned about just kind of general safety. You know, I'm the only parent. What if something happens to me as my, you know, child who was nine at the time? Um, what does that do to them? What do I need to set up and and make sure we've discussed and that they have on hand in case they have to call someone that we know can help them, you know, just Mm -hmm. those kinds of things. Uh, You know, what if I get sick? You know, I mean, just um, those were concerns. And then also as a single parent, you know, I worked full time. So, you know, the child went to school and I was at work and, you know, I picked them up after, after work from daycare and you have a little bit of time and then you have the weekends, but to think of 24 seven, um, and I'm the kind of person I, I need my breaks from mm. people, in, including children. Mm. <laughs> I, I need some time for me. And that was a question I had about being a single parent traveling was, you know, what am I going to do? Am I going to be able to handle it when I don't get those breaks? And and how did you handle that when you didn't get those breaks? Because it's really funny that you bring that up because it was the same thing that, that I went through when, when we were traveling and, and I was traveling with my wife, but for, for our, our, adventure we were able to take uh our our business on the road with us where inga is the the main worker so i was the main carer for our child and Mm -hmm. and it was you know one of the key reasons and one thing i was going to love was to be able to spend all of this time with andy but when i was actually doing it i realized hey i was with her from sun up till sundown like every moment that she was awake, which it was hard. Like, when do I get like my own time? Like I didn't realize how much of that I would be giving up, which is, you know, every stay at home parent understands. Um, but it's really, it's, it's funny, those things that we, we want time with our kids, but then when we have it, like it, it is, it is different. But for you, like, how did you, how did you deal with that being, being the only parent on the road? Well, it surprised me. It actually went really well. Um, you know, I would have a little bit of time in the mornings because, you know, she didn't have to get up to an alarm clock since they weren't doing school like that. And so she could sleep in. Um, so I, in the mornings, I had time to get my work done and, you know, just kind of enjoy some time to read or whatever where I was kind of by myself. Um, and then the first place we stayed at was... Um, kind of a hostel um, and it was run by husband and wife and she and my child just totally clicked. She became a surrogate aunt (laughs) 
And so um, we were there for a while. And because of their relationship was, you know, good enough, she understood that a single parent needs some breaks. And there was times that she offered to mm. just, you know, let Tigger stay around the place um, while I went out and for a walk or went into town to do stuff. Um, so that that helped. But I actually found that I really loved having all this extra time mm. with my child. And we were snorkeling every day and um, going to the beach every day and just enjoying each other's company. And um, it turned out to really not, you know, be as much of a problem as I was expecting. Mm. And having that little bit of time in the morning where I could be by myself, um, that was enough to recharge my battery. It's, it's your, your sentiment echoes mine immensely. I, I did the same. It was just getting up that little bit earlier to have my time. And then it was like, let's, let's rock and roll and, and, and tackle the day together. Um, how, how, how long were you guys traveling for and, and how many countries, like, where did you go? So we traveled for five and a half years full time. Wow. And, um, we went to about 40 countries. Holy Nelly. And some of them were multiple visits. Um, but yeah, 40 countries. Oh, wow. And, and what, what has traveling taught you about yourself? Um, well, I always knew that I adapted well. Um, and I found that with travel, I, I'm really much better even than I thought at adapting. <laughs> um, and it was kind of interesting because, you know, before when I would travel just doing short trips, you know, I would pack way more than I needed. Um, I'd get to a place and I, I was, you know, basically my room was for me to sleep at night. And that was pretty much it. I was out seeing as much as I possibly could and everything. And um, it would, you know, by the time I was done the vacation, I was pretty wore out. And with this kind of travel, when you're doing it indefinitely, you don't have that rush. And mm. you've seen so much already that when you get to a place rather than going and seeing the tourist hunts, I'm more interested in finding all the the stuff that the locals do. And, and I want to capture the, you know, images of life and, and see what life in that area is like and what are locals experiencing. And so a lot of times we would just go for a walk and turn down different streets and try to get lost. And uh, we had so many cool experiences and, and found so many cool things that, I wouldn't have otherwise because of that. And uh, we also did house sitting a lot. So we would take care of someone's home and their pets while they were away on holiday. And that gave us an opportunity to be in an area that would not have probably, you know, visited mm -hmm. otherwise and really get exposure to local life and culture and just what it's like to live someplace. And, and that was something that I found I loved a lot more than doing the tourist haunts, which isn't something I expected. And, and even now we do, you know, short-term travel. So we take shorter trips now and I find that I'm, I'm still kind of in that space. I really don't want to be going all day and night, you know, seeing everything I can. I want to, I want to go, I want to enjoy. I kind of want to feel what the place is like and uh, I'll enjoy more time doing an outdoor cafe or something and, enjoying a beautiful sunset whereas you know before as a traveler 
I would not have bothered with that. Got too much stuff I need to see. <laughs> but there's, there's so, it's so true. We we actually were house sitting as well. We, we've got a lot of similarities, <laughs> you and I here, Tal. Yeah, <laughs> but we because that's how that's how we were able to afford to travel to to not yeah, pay accommodation. You know, but yeah. you're you know that's that slow travel that you kind of talk about. There's such a difference between seeing a place and feeling a place. And you, yeah. you don't get to feel a place when you're rushing. And I think that's like just life in general. You don't get to feel life when you're kind of rushing just around day to day. Um, but what, why did you guys stop? Like what was the main reason for that? Well, a big part of it was Tigger was a teenager and as a teen wanted to, you know, have more of, of a home environment, more of a community be able to have local friends and everything. Uh, so we had actually decided to settle and we were going to stay in Budapest. We had actually applied for visas. Um, but in that process, uh, Tigger announced that uh, he was transgender female. And uh, so to in order to accommodate getting therapy and medication that she wanted to do and getting name changes done and getting documents changed and everything, we knew we had to come back to the U.S. to do that. Mm -hmm. And so we uh, took that opportunity to come back to the U.S. so that she could pursue those things that she needed. And how was that conversation for you? Uh, of the return? Yeah, no, when when Tiggy decided to, to say, hey, Dad, you know, I, I see myself as a, as a girl. How, mm -hmm. how, you know, how was, how was that conversation? How was that brought up and how, how did you embrace that? I, I'm, I know lovingly, but how, how was yeah. that? And, well, it was interesting. It was kind of a, well, the lead up was very gradual. And then, <laughs> then it just was like, boom, overnight. Uh, she had, while we were in Mexico, we were going to do some clothes shopping because we're heading back to Europe and I'm like, well, it's cheaper here. Let's get clothes while we're here. And she announced that she was going to, uh, check out clothes in the women's department to see if they were more comfortable. And I was like, well, okay, that sounds a little bit weird, but all right, whatever. So we went and she picked out a couple items, but they were very androgynous. So I was mm -hmm. just like, okay, I'm not sure where this is going, but all right. And then uh, we came back and spent a little bit of time in Europe and we got to Budapest and we were uh, picking up some groceries and stuff at a store and she came by and she said, oh, they've got nail polish on uh, on sale and i said oh okay she said they've got purple nail polish i said well purple's a nice color i'm thinking to myself oh dear where are we going mm -hmm. <laughs> but i want to be supportive so i just said well gotta find something to say i'll say purple's a nice color because that's what i got right now <laughs> and uh she wanted to know if she could buy some i'm like all right sure and she painted her nails and i'm like okay well you know we'll just see where this goes and then um one day she said i wonder what it's like to wear a dress and I said, well, there's only one way to find out. And uh, so we would walk by stores and just to be supportive, I'd point out, oh, there's a pretty dress, whatever. And she wasn't interested. So I was like, whatever. And then um, one day she said, well, yeah, I actually would like to try one on. So we went in and she tried it on and um, decided she wanted it. So I bought it for her. And um, I knew something was markedly different because... 
her nickname is Tigger. And the reason is because she doesn't walk. She bounces. <laughs> so <laughs> she runs, hops, skips, jumps. There's no walking. And after getting the dress, she didn't want it in a bag. And as we were walking back to our apartment, she um, was walking. Mm-hmm. And she held the dress tightly against her chest like it was a, a treasure. And I just was like, this is very interesting because I have really never seen this child just walk unless she was really tired. And even then it didn't last for very long. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of interested. And um, so we got home. She changed into it. She wanted me to put a picture on Facebook. So I did. And um hoped for the best with my friends and mm. have really good Facebook friends. But, you know, I, I know that I have some that are not going to settle well with, you know, a boy wearing a dress. So I just hoped for the best and was ready to delete stuff. And um, of course, my friends are wonderful and they were all very supportive and we're giving her tips on makeup and accessorizing and these kinds of things. And I thought, well, that's great. And so I went to bed and when I woke up the next morning, I was you know, sitting there reading on Facebook and looked at a notification and went to that thread. And in the thread, she said, by the way, she. Mm. And I thought, oh, okay, what does this mean? What does this mean? And um, thought I've got to ask her. And I had to wait for hours because she sleeps until almost noon. <laughs> and so it was a really long morning. And when she got up, I said, I saw this and I don't understand. What does that mean? And that she's that's when she informed me that she was transgender and that she was identifying as a female. And so, um, you know, it was a big, a big hit, kind of a not a total surprise because we had been kind of going slowly in that direction. But, um, you know, there's a lot of parents that when their children announce that they're transgender, they can look back and say, Oh, yeah, you know, Mm. it makes sense. Every since they were little, they were always this way. Tigger wasn't. There was no signs from, you know, stereotypical behavior. She was 150% stereotypical boy in every way imaginable. Um, So I didn't have that. Mm. Looking backwards, I'm like, I'm just, I'm not, don't understand where this is coming from. And, um, but I want to support her. And I think the the biggest thing is that she knows that I love her and that I'm going to do what she needs and be there for her and help her walk this journey. And I guess we'll just see where it goes kind of thing. Um, and, you know, I immediately got online and was researching parent groups because I started having these really strong grief feelings about losing my son. Mm. You know, I still have this child and... But there was something that hit me about not having the son anymore. Um, And I thought I was kind of going a little cuckoo there. Um, And so I connected with uh, these trans, other parents of trans kids in these groups and found out that they felt the same thing. This was actually a very normal uh, grieving pattern and trying to adjust and and everything. So that, that was a huge 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 benefit especially with me being in budapest because as you can imagine wow yeah i forgot where you were support (laughs) (laughs) thankfully budapest itself is an international young city so it's not a problem but the rest of hungary is very different and the laws are you know they're you know kids can't transition you can't Mm. begin to start transitioning with hormones until you're 18 they won't they won't let you do anything 
Um, whereas the Netherlands that has done all these studies over, you know, last hundred years or so or more says, you know, when kids are, you know, if you can start before puberty, if a child identifies, you know, before puberty begins, and that's even better because you can start the puberty blockers. And anyways, there was just so much information. And then I'm in Hungary, so that makes a little bit more of a challenge, but thank goodness I know Facebook has its issues, but it really was a huge benefit to me because these groups were in Facebook and I was able to connect with people in different countries, a lot of them in the U.S. and um, could hear or, you know, discover what their experiences were getting treatment and fights they had to have with courts over name changes or whatever and insurance. And I, I could really, it was just a huge, huge help to get me through that and to figure out, you know, how can I best support my child? Wow. Like that is like beautiful. The way that you were able to, you know, slowly and lovingly encourage Tigger through that. But as you said, like to be in a completely different country that has completely different values and not to be around, um, you know, face to face with kind of friends and things like that. Uh, it must have been um, quite an experience, one that most travelers don't often have. Uh, you don't see that one in the brochure. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so, well, and that, and that drastically changed our travels too, because now, you know, when we we're looking at other countries to visit before we decided to come back to the US, you know, I have to research and see how that culture handles. Uh, people who are trans, especially because in, in a lot of cultures, if your uh, biological birth is male and you're a trans female, they treat that very differently than they treat a biological female who identifies as a male. Because in a lot of cultures, you know, a girl becoming a boy is a step up. And mm. so there's that issue too. And then some religious things like Turkey was a definite do not as a trans person, it's not wise. Mm. Um, other countries were like, well, these cities are good. You know, other areas you probably don't want to go to. And it it really added a whole different level of preparation but, but even, and research that I never had to do before. But even on that, like, I'm just thinking like the whole passport side of things. Like you don't, mm -hmm. you don't have a, do you have a new passport that has a, female she does now yeah. she does now but mm -hmm. like whilst this is happening you didn't right you didn't have no. that so is, is no and it, it had you know she was going you know identifying with a different name because her other name was masculine she wanted a feminine name so we hadn't done the legal name change yet because we're back in the u.s and so in our live i'm calling you know in our lives i'm calling her by her chosen name and pronoun but going through the passport line of course she yeah. knows that she's going to be called a boy and mm. um and she made decisions we would talk about whether or not she was going to dress more boyish or more feminine on days where we were changing countries and going through passport control because we weren't sure always how that was going to go for some countries i was just like yeah it doesn't really matter she felt safer dressing more masculine mm. on those days but i left it up to her i said you know they don't really tend to look at those things as long as you look like your photo which mm. you pretty much do um you know we'll be okay but uh yeah it was very very different experience and sometimes it was a little um uh, nerve-wracking but mm. you know luckily we went to 
from Budapest, you went to countries that are, you know, very open and accepting. Uh, we went to the Netherlands and to France and then to um, the UK before we came back to the US. So that worked out well. It's not how we planned it, but it worked. It, things mm -hmm. fell together that way. And of course, the Netherlands is fantastic if you're trans. Mm -hmm. And the UK was very good, even even though we were living in small villages we had no issues whatsoever. Mm. The um, yeah, I guess what's really happened is that the universe, all those years ago when Tigger first came into your life, knew that you were the right person to be her parent because you were yeah. going to be able to to go through this part of her journey with her with like an open heart and 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 love. Do you know what I mean? Other people might mm -hmm. not have done that. Definitely. And I think it's just such, you know, I'm a big believer that things happen for a reason. And, and her coming into your life all of those years ago was, this could have been one of those reasons, you know? Definitely. And I think, you know, I think our travels also helped with that because with her, you know, doing world schooling rather than the traditional school model and um, not being in that school environment, like in the U.S. for teens, pretty rough and tons of peer pressure and trying to fit in and all that, because of the way that we did things and we were living our own life and our own adventure. And I, I really tried hard to teach her to be her own person. You know, don't don't be what you think society wants you to do or what even who you think I want you to be. Be who you are, and that's the best you can do. And and you know, living in other countries that uh, were independence is a much greater thing for children. It's, you know, in the U.S. that can be challenging. I've heard the same about Australia sometimes. Um, the level of independence in some of these other countries was uh, phenomenal for her. And I think all of that really helped her to be able that when she finally had the vocabulary to say this is who I am and, and, and this is what I've always felt like, but didn't have the words for, I think that environment, you know, of all these years of travel and the independence and the strength of our relationship, I think that all combined to enable her to do that. Mm. You, um, you said earlier that you have a motto of live without regrets. Yep. How do you try to live without regrets on a daily basis? Uh, it, it's a challenge, <laughs> uh, especially, you know, living back a more quote unquote normal life, uh, you know, where you get up in the morning and you work full time and you come home and you have bills to pay and car payments and uh, you're in the same same place all the time. And when you take trips, you're still paying for your, you know, your rent on top of the lodging that of wherever you're staying and just all these other factors that are part of normal life. Um, but I still try to live those moments when there's a any big decision that we have to make, it, it has to go with the no regret test, which, you know, we would say, okay, if we if we don't do this, will we regret it? And if the answer is, yeah, I don't think so, well, then, okay, it's not mm. as big of a deal. If the answer is, yes, I think so, then we know what decision we need to make. And, um, you know, there's all kinds of opportunities in life. There's a job that I was offered recently that was kind of in that situation. And ultimately, the regret test did not pass, and so I turned it down. So, you know, um, 
I think that's something just keeping prominent before decisions. And when there's something that you want to do, um, you know, in, in this, in this mode, I'm always thinking about money and financial and making sure we're okay here and there and everything. And I've got a big birthday coming up and I wanted to do something that would be celebrating that. And, um, the idea of, from Washington to state to Europe is uh, about an 18 hour travel day because of all the stops they make. Um, and I just am like, no, I, I'm not at a place right now where that sounds okay to me. And so we decided to do an Alaska cruise. Oh, wow. Um, so that, you know, we had never done a cruise and I've been to parts of Alaska, but not the parts where the cruise is going. And Tigger's never been to Alaska and neither of us have been on a cruise. And I thought, well, there's a way of, you know, kind of letting our, doing our live without regrets, doing something new, something we've never done before and still giving us an opportunity to celebrate in a big special way. And financially it's, it's an ouch, but you know, I'd rather have a little bit of debt and, uh, than regret. So mm. we decided to do it. And and when are you doing this cruise? That's in July. Got you. Well, <laughs> No, that's going to be before my parents. My parents are actually heading over to the, the U.S. and Canada later this year, and they're actually doing a cruise up into Alaska as well. I thought that would be oh. uh, that would be quite yeah. funny if you guys were on the same one. Talk about small world. That would exactly. Definitely be. <laughs> uh, but, but Talon, I have, I have one final question for you, and it is one that I ask all of my guests, and that's if you could please describe your perfect day. Well, I think my perfect day would be uh, sleeping in until my body woke me up at a decent hour, having a very nice breakfast, catching a boat and going out and doing a couple of, of uh, scuba dives, coming back, having a nice lunch, going back out for a couple more scuba dives and uh, watching the sunset while I enjoy a beer. Uh, nice. And what is it that you love about scuba diving? It's such a different world under the water. I mean, I know that. It's kind of a dub, but it's just if if you haven't done it, being in that environment where everything is so different and you're just floating, you you know, you're kind of like flying, but mm. you're very slow motion, so it's not really flying, but you're just floating there and there's tons of, you know, depending where you're diving, but where we started doing our diving and where we lived for eight months while I was a teacher was in the Caribbean area. And so, you know, we just had go underwater and you're just surrounded by life and all these different creatures. And, and, and there's so many layers of types of marine life and the way that things have worked out. And, you know, like a fish that would normally eat a smaller fish will go to quote unquote, a cleaning station and it will adopt a certain posture that tells the cleaning shrimp and some of the other fish that do cleaning, like, we're cool, I just need a cleaning. And they'll come out and go and they'll go in their mouth and come out their gills and do all this little cleaning. And then they set off and the fish goes on its way. And, you know, at any other time, it would eat a smaller fish, but it understands that they need each other. And wow. so they're safe. I mean, you just, there's so many complexities and, and you see creatures that you sit there and you're like, why on earth do you look like you do? And why do you have the behaviors you do? And to watch some of them hunt and some of them just sit there and wait for their prey to come to them and others that are, you know, 
just hiding from bigger prey. And then you, uh, I remember one time we were diving and I was uh, doing my dive master training. And so an instructor had students out and we had these kind of like pipe squares and triangles and stuff that they would teach them to dive through, swim through when they're scuba diving to learn better buoyancy control. And while he had them over working on something, I was setting up the pipes and all of a sudden 50 of these reef squid that are, you know, fairly small showed up and they're flashing colors and and to each other and they're communicating and adopting different body languages they are coming and inspecting these pipes. And it was just such an out of the world experience. And you just don't, there's no way you can have these experiences above the water, just mm-hmm. the way things are. And so it's just such a different environment and, and coming out of a dive. I've, you know, I've never come up from a dive upset, just always <laughs> thrilled and excited and just felt like, oh my gosh, that was so cool. And, you know, just seeing the way that coral sits, just there's so much to it. And, and it's just so different from your regular world and life that, it's just an unbeatable experience. It's a very, very addictive sport to get into, and it's something I miss greatly. Have you ever been scared? Um, not really scared. Well, okay, there was one time when a student disappeared on me. Uh, <laughs> that that was scary. Um, but as a you, you did diver, find the student though, didn't you? Yes, he yeah. didn't follow directions, and he floated up, and rather than staying where he's following directions and staying put where I could have spotted him, he swam towards the boat. So when I'm looking for him, I can't find him because he's on the fricking boat. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, that was really scary. But um, other than that, <laughs> no, we did um, a shark dive once. And um, that wasn't scary, but that was, there was a moment when, you know, these sharks are, are circling us. And I know that they don't attack humans. I, I know this. And um, but Tigger was with us mm. and most of the time because of the depth requirement, the only people that go on dives are typically adults or older teens. And, um, because younger kids aren't certified to go beyond a certain depth and this was below that depth. But because I'm an instructor, I said, you know, will you let my child come and just be underneath, you know, my, my decision that I did this and I'll be in charge of him. And they're like, yeah, that's fine. So here's this, uh, I think Tigger was 10. And sharks had, these sharks had never seen a 10-year-old. <laughs> At least from what I can tell, they were very curious. And they're swimming around and you can feel their intelligence. And you can see that they're like, wow, this is really interesting. And so this one shark, she kept circling and with each circle, she got a little closer and a little closer. And there was one point where I was just like, okay, I know you're not a danger, but I can't handle this. Mm. <laughs> so I swam a little closer to to where Tigger was and she backed off. But yeah, that was so it wasn't a scary moment, but it was kind of like, eh, how much do I really want to trust nature here? Mm. And so that was a little bit of an, a little tiny nerve wracking for a moment, but for the most of the time, it was just a tremendous experience. That is fascinating and fascinating that you, 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 you say there that you can feel their intelligence, you know, it be, was being down amazing. There. Yeah. Wow. You, it was really, you, like I said, you could, you'd look in their eye and you can see where their eye is 
but I don't know if you've ever gone whale watching. No, I haven't. But I had a similar, okay, I had a similar experience doing whale watching where uh, it was a humpback whale and it got really close to our boat and moved on its side. And I was staring over the boat and just looking at this big eyeball and you could feel that it was contemplating you and you could feel its grace and its intelligence and and you could feel that it was pondering what this was and who you were and what the situation was and this these sharks reminded me of that as well as they were swimming and you'd look at their eyes you could feel it it was unmistakable you could feel their presence of cognition and that they were working things out and you could just feel this intelligence and i've you know I, you watch videos, you read stuff, you hear about this but sh- with sharks, but you don't really, until you're in the water with them in this situation and you feel that, I don't think you can truly appreciate just how smart these creatures are and how much they work through things. They're fascinating animals. So to be able to be that that close and have that experience was just tremendous. And especially for Tigger, you know, at age 10 to be able to do that. <laughs> mm. You know, most adults don't have that experience. So to be able to do that as a kid is even cooler. Wow. Like Talon, thanks so much for giving me your time today and coming on. Like you've been unbelievable. I've, I've learned so well, much from you and I absolutely admire the way that you approach certain things in your life or everything in your life that, that you've been able to share with me today. But if, if people want to reach out to you, if they got some questions or if they, they want to read some of your writings or follow your story, what's the best way for them to do that? Visiting the blog is probably the best, the one dad, one Um, there is an about section, which you read at the beginning. Um, and they can contact us through the blog. I'm also, very active on social media. I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram a lot. And um, so I'm there as well. And I have no problem talking to people. Every so often I get emails from people that have questions about travel or a specific destination. And I'm very happy to answer any questions I can. Oh, beautiful. I will make sure that I link to all of your socials in the show notes at liveimmediately.com along with your website. Do you have any final comments or, or anything that you want to leave us with or anything that I've, I've left out or forgotten about? No, I just really encourage people, you know, obviously I'm going to encourage people to travel. I, I think it's an experience that just can't be replaced with anything else. Um, and you learn so much more about other people and just life in this world. I'm so much more interested in what's going on in other places because I've been so many places. Um, But the biggest thing that I encourage people solidly is if you have a dream, turn it into a reality. You know, we, we joke that uh, our secondary family motto is chase down your dreams and make them your bitch. And (laughs) that's kind of how I feel. I just, I feel like, you know, for us, for me, the dream was world travel. And for someone else, you know, one of my friends, it was to go to college and get her degree. And she ended up doing that, you know, at almost age 50. And so those are the kinds of things that I really encourage people just if if you have a dream, a big, big wish, a big whatever, do it, go for it. And, you know, just just own it. Mm, I love it. Thank you. Thanks again, Talon, um, for coming on. I I really do appreciate it. And um, thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next time, have fun and live immediately. 
That was another episode of the Live Immediately podcast with Mike Campbell. Thanks so much for listening. The original Live Immediately theme music is by the multi-talented Timothy McPhee. You can check out his music at firekites.bandcamp.com. If you enjoyed the show, had some fun, and maybe even learned something, then make sure you subscribe via iTunes. And while you're there, why not leave a rating and a review? You know it's going to make my day. Thanks for stopping by and giving me some of your time today. I'll catch you on the next episode. And until then, have fun and live immediately.